Mark chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and read through verse 32. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. He who is not with me is against me. Such a strong statement. Some arrogant guy out there somewhere must be the author of this quote. He who is not with me is against me. But he doesn't stop there. And he who does not gather with me scatters. I'm joking by being some arrogant guy. This is a quote from Jesus who makes it very, very clear that when it comes to the things of the Lord, 
There is no neutrality. None. You see the title of the sermon there in the bulletin, Summoned to Serve? If I were to retitle it right now, it would be unquestionably no neutrality. While it is true that we have been summoned to serve, we've been summoned to serve because we live in a world where there is no possibility of neutrality. Neutrality is almost always marked with apathy or indifference or carelessness or ignorance. One contemporary minister concerning the institutionalized racial segregation of the apartheid in South Africa said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. There is no neutrality. And so when it comes to the kingdom of God, he who is not with me is against me. Jesus makes it abundantly clear there is no neutrality. He who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, we have the obligation, the option or opportunity to either be a gatherer or a scatterer. We are either active in kingdom advance, that is evangelism and missions, so, which is no different except for the location, primarily evangelism we might consider as local and missions is evangelism abroad. We have the option of either being active in kingdom advance or a scatterer. This is according to Jesus. Jesus has a very specific strategy when it comes to advancing his kingdom. We see in the scriptures, he actually says in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And that was where he was initially sent. But if you noticed in the scripture reading... From Isaiah 49, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to merely raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. This is the strategy of Jesus, to reach to the ends of the earth that his kingdom will advance to every dark corner of the planet. So when we come to Mark chapter 6, verse 7, which is where we're picking up in the passage today. We really should have been expecting this to happen all along. At what point is Jesus going to call these apostles to himself? We've seen him calling them along the way. And we've known that it was for something specific. In chapter 1, he called Simon and Andrew and then James and John saying, Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Or in chapter 2, Levi was called from his tax booth and his evil ways from his former life to follow along as well. Or chapter 3, others were appointed so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. And now all of that has come together here in chapter 6. These 12 who have been set aside, called unto Christ, have been summoned by Christ in order to serve him. Look at verse 7. Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, instructing them in how they should go out. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a few moments. They are summoned to Jesus. This is the way that Jesus trains his servants. It's the, the method that he used, and it's recorded for us for our benefit so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel and, and try to figure out what it ought to look like as we seek to reach a lost world around us. The methods that Jesus implements here offer timeless lessons for us. Now, Jesus is obviously summoning his apostles and while there are timeless lessons for us all, we should note, it is necessary for us to note at the outset, that the apostles possess a uniqueness that no one else possesses. Not just none of us, but no one else, other than 
the 12 originals along with the apostle born out of due time. They have a uniqueness that no others possess. One of those things is an eyewitness to Jesus, an eyewitness of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ministry day in and day out. In fact, it's their eyewitnesses' account of this man that serve as the basis of the New Testament. They were also given supernatural power to drive out demons and to heal the sick. No others ever have been given that power or authority. They were made the foundation of the church of which Christ is the cornerstone. Ephesians 2 makes this clear. And the foundation that God has laid using Christ as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the foundation is a sufficient foundation, and it would be absolute lunacy for us to go and try to lay another foundation on a foundation that God himself has laid. This office or role, this position of apostle has ceased completely. And only a fool would seek to revive it in any way at all. Yet, though they are unique and separate from every one of us, they still serve as examples for us, particularly with regard to the lessons and the methods that we see Jesus implementing here as far as reaching out to a lost world. They are proclaiming the gospel to the lost, which we ought to be doing. They're preaching repentance from sins, calling people to faith in Christ. They go out warning those who reject the gospel, warning of the danger to those who reject the gospel. They went out showing compassion and love to the suffering. They went out and we're expected to live holy lives. And we're expected to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And in all of these ways, along with others, they serve as wonderful examples for us. I want to split this fairly extended text into just two sections or two points. First, lasting lessons. What are those lessons that are beneficial for us that Jesus implemented and Mark recorded, and secondly, serving and sacrificing. What type of service are we called to and what type of sacrificing might we experience? Now, verses 7 through 32 appears to contain two stories. One, Jesus summoning the twelve and sending them out, and two, John the Baptist losing his head. But really, it's one story. If you look quickly with me, verse 13, they were casting out many demons, anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And then go to verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. That's one story. It leaves off at verse 13 and picks up again at verse 30. Mark has a habit of doing this in his writing style of sandwiching some other truth or some lesson. Here it's a bit of a flashback into the middle portion, middle section. Difficult to know exactly why Mark would have done it, but it seems very clear that as he's writing about and remembering what Jesus has called his apostles to do, that he's very well aware that John the Baptist, though not an apostle, was a servant of Christ, and he was called to sacrifice greatly. He was very faithful in his witness, and he suffered the loss of his head, initially imprisonment and eventually martyrdom as a result of his faithfulness. So we'll look at lasting lessons and then serving and sacrificing. First, verses 7 through 13, the lasting lessons. He summoned the twelve. Jesus summoned the twelve to himself. Here's the first lesson for all who will be 
ministers of the gospel. And by minister, I do not mean vocational minister. I mean a Christian who is an ambassador who is called to share the gospel with those around you. We are prepared by Christ. We are summoned to Him. We listen to Him. We watch Him. We hear Him teach. We see Him minister and work. As a disciple of Jesus, you are primarily called to Him because you are saved exclusively by Him. You're not saved by proclaiming Him. Being saved by Christ, you desire to see others also saved by Him, and you know that faith comes by hearing, so the only way hearing is going to happen is if you proclaim it. If you live in light of the truths that are in the Scripture, and if you proclaim the truth of the good news that Christ came to save sinners. So the first lasting lesson is As disciples of Jesus, like the original 12 apostles, we ought to be prepared by Him. And the way that preparation happens is by us listening to Him, reading His Word, and seeking to obey Him. These original 12 apostles were called to make a sacrifice. I mentioned some of them being called from their previous lifestyles. Matthew or Levi called from being a tax collector or... Peter and Andrew and James and John called from being fishermen. They were called to make a sacrifice. Not everybody's called to to leave their everyday employment, but everyone is called to go out of their way to serve Him, to sacrifice for Him. So the second lasting lesson is that we are called to make a sacrifice. The third lasting lesson is very practical. It's an apprenticeship of sorts. Jesus called, called the original apostles and sent them out on a trial run, if you will. This is remarkable. They're given all the authority of Jesus, all the power to do the wonderful works of Jesus. And still he sends them out on a trial run, basically, to learn by doing. Experience is absolutely necessary for any type of real learning. We all know this. I mean, you can read about something in a book and you can understand it to some level. You can listen to a lecture and you can understand something to some degree. But until you put it into practice, until you do it, until the rubber meets the road, as it were, you just don't get it. You don't understand it in the same way. I grew up in a home. My stepdad worked construction out in the field installing installing fire sprinkler systems inside buildings and if I heard it once I heard it a hundred times I wish some of those engineers would come out to the field sometimes you know the people drawing the blueprints in order to to see it and and to understand the dynamics it's the same way in, in in life particularly with regard to sharing the gospel now some of you may be thinking I know what the gospel is I mean God saved me how could I not know it but But if you ask me to sit down and share the gospel with someone or to to go out into the community and to proclaim the gospel, I'm just not sure I could do it. I I would go blank or not know what to say. That's a common occurrence. You're not alone. In fact, the majority of us would be in that camp. There is one, primarily one way to get over that. You know what it is? Every one of you know what it is. And you'd rather me not say it, but just do it. You just go out and you do it. But here's the thing. The fourth lasting lesson is you don't do it alone. Jesus sent them out in twos. There's multiple reasons for this. I've just mentioned one of them. But any testimony, biblical testimony, must be established by more than one witness. Not to mention the practical encouragement and the companionship. I mean, if you've ever been in a difficult situation, it's just nice to have someone there, period, no matter what the situation is. But especially with regard to trying to reach people with the gospel who don't care about the gospel. Having someone else there so you can walk away basically licking your wounds together after you've been 
beat up or made fun of. It is often the case that on the sidewalk at the abortion clinic, whatever is, is, is yelled out, and I can't repeat any of that uh, here. I probably shouldn't repeat it anywhere, but I will not repeat it here. Um, but there's a lot of, of chatter on the sidewalk among those who are ministering. Like, can you believe they said that? Or, wow, like, they said that. I mean, that's a way of of companionship and practical encouragement one to another with regard to serving in that capacity. Jesus called us to go out and not be alone. But there's also an accountability that we benefit from. We see this happening not just originally when the apostles went out, but Barnabas and Saul in Acts 13, or Paul and Silas in Acts 15, or Barnabas and Mark, who recorded this for us in Acts chapter 15. So, prepared by Jesus, the first lasting lesson, called to make a sacrifice, practical apprenticeships, going out two by two, and then traveling light. Now, that doesn't mean that those who are going out evangelizing, whether intentionally or just as you go about your life, that you should absolutely never have any money on you or ever have a bag with you or ever carry any bread with you. It doesn't mean that you need to find some kind of cool staff to carry around. The point is that you should trust God for everything and leave all the extra stuff behind. Right? Take Christ and offer Christ. Right? You'll be less likely to offer other stuff if you just have Christ. So we, we take Christ and we travel light using what Jesus says here to his apostles, go without a bag, go without money, go without bread, go without an extra tunic. Let simplicity define the going, and upon arrival, be content in him. So simplicity and contentment should define all of our lives because all of our lives should be one of promoting the gospel of the kingdom. Go without an extra staff. Why? Because we can lean on God. Go without a bag. God will supply all your needs. Go without bread. God will provide for you. Go without money. Your needs will be granted. Go without an extra tunic. Be clothed with the good news. Go without extra sandals. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Go. Jesus says to his apostles, his disciples, and to us as his people, go. Go preaching. Go in simplicity. Go with contentment. Now, I could skip on to number six here, but some of you may have a habit of reading what the other gospel writers say about these stories, and if you do, I want to draw your attention to a discrepancy between Matthew's account and Mark's account. I'm also trusting that if you happen to be one of those people that love to find discrepancies in the Bible when you somehow use them as an excuse not to believe, to draw your attention that it's only an apparent discrepancy that there is a solution. So Matthew chapter 10, do not acquire gold, Jesus says. This is Matthew's account of the exact same story. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belt. So Luke simply says, no money in your belt. Or a bag for your journey. Or even two coats or sandals or a staff. All right, we just read that Mark said, don't carry anything except a mere staff and wear sandals. So Matthew writes that Jesus says not to take a staff or wear sandals. Mark writes that Jesus says, take a staff and wear sandals. Who's right? Why didn't they collaborate so that we wouldn't be faced with this issue? Well, Mark wrote first, just, just uh, make him write, right, because he's the earliest writer. Well, we, we can't do that. I say often to my kids, I don't care who had it first. That's not the issue. <laughs> so here's the solution. In Matthew's saying, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, his emphasis is definitely on extra stuff. So he most likely intends us to read it as, don't even take two coats or two pair of sandals or two staffs. Right? 
You, you don't need the extra stuff. You take the bare minimum. You go in simplicity. And just like that, we've solved that problem. So. Sixth. I'm not sure that these numbers are, are right. But if you're taking notes, you can tell me afterwards if the numbering was all messed up. So. Preach the gospel. Here's a lasting lesson. Preach the gospel. Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. Right? Not only the apostles are supposed to do this. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to go out and to preach repentance and faith. Understanding that the good news is good because the bad news is really far worse than we've come to realize. How should we do that? We have an example of that in John the Baptist, actually. What did John the Baptist use to preach the good news? He used the law of God. You think, that's a lot, 600 plus laws. How do I know which one to apply in each situation? Well, you, you could learn a few of them. There are 10 pretty good ones that apply to almost all of us all of the time. But you could shrink it down to that and just use the two great commandments which summarize those ten, which summarize the rest of the law, and call people to repent for not loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind and loving their neighbor as themselves. We can do that. We can preach the gospel and emphasize the good news because of the bad news and using God and the perfection of his person as revealed in his law to do that. So Jesus has selected his disciples, and he's chosen his apostles. They have had front row seats to his life. They've watched every move. They have been his constant traveling companions. They've witnessed his miracles up close. They watched him speak, and the waves cease, and the winds hush. They watched the garrison demoniac go from a screeching rebel to calm and clothed and in his right mind. They've heard his teaching day after day. They have seen and witnessed and felt the authority with which he taught. And now he's sending them out. And they must apply what they have learned from him. And as I mentioned earlier, there is simply no substitute for on-the-job training. Nothing can take the place of the school of hard knocks. Practical experience is an absolute necessity. This apprenticeship is exactly what the apostles needed. This kind of practical experience is exactly what we need. Jesus transfers his authority and power, not giving them all of his authority, but allowing them to use his authority and power, giving them the ability and right. He's only one man. He can only be in one place at a time. And he has determined, as a result of that, to use his people to accomplish his purposes. It's too small a thing. Go back to the prophet Isaiah, verse 49 from the reading. It's too small a thing to just go to the lost sheep of Israel. The whole world needs the gospel. How is one man going to accomplish that? Jesus will eventually say, at the end of Mark's gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And here we find it again, from the mouth of our Lord. Those who believe will be saved, those who do not believe will be condemned. There's no neutrality. There's no other path. There's no other option. But everyone's not going to believe. What happens then? Well, again, we have a lasting lesson from Jesus. Verse 11, any place that does not receive you, listen to you, or go out from there, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. What do you do when people don't listen? Well, it hurts when they don't. Sometimes it's personal hurt, and we just need to get over that. 
But sometimes it's real compassion and hurting for them because you know their lostness. You know the impending doom. And if they don't turn to Christ, they will suffer immeasurably. But we know that rejection is going to happen. It it, it happened to Jesus himself. In in this story, it happens to John the Baptist. We know that it's going to happen to some of the apostles. How does Jesus say to respond? He doesn't say, go home and get in a corner and moan about it and look for self-pity. He says, shake the dust off your feet and keep on moving. Keep on preaching the gospel. This shaking the dust off your feet, it was common in their day, a symbol of ridding Gentile defilement. If they went outside of Israel in any way before they came back in, they would take their sandals off and brush off the filth of the dirty Gentiles so they didn't bring it in to their land. And here Jesus is saying, this is quite the declaration from Jesus, when he says, shake the dust off the soles of your feet. It would have never crossed their mind to do that with regard to gospel preaching. It was just based on lineage up until that point. But here Jesus is emphatically saying, Israelites who reject Jesus are no better than unclean Gentiles. So you make them aware of that by knocking the dust off your feet. When they reject you. Now, this is true not just for the Israelites that the apostles would have been ministering to in Jesus' day. This is true for you if you reject Jesus. The absolute worst place to go to hell from is a Christian family. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you if you're sitting under the preached gospel and refusing to bow the knee to Jesus and trust in Him. They went out and preached that men should repent. The proclamation of the Word is absolutely necessary. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about the importance of preaching. The importance of preaching is God's chosen instrument for doing good to souls. By it, sinners are converted, inquirers led on, and saints built up. Preaching is absolutely essential to the health and prosperity of a church. Preaching is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won. And no church has ever done much for the advancement of true religion in which preaching has been neglected. Now, this is true from preaching here in this format from a pulpit, but it's also true with any type of proclamation, with you proclaiming the truth to a friend sitting across at dinner or walking across campus or with a coworker at your job. The importance of proclaiming Christ is necessary for sinners to be converted, for inquirers to be led on and encouraged, and for Christians to be built up in the faith. So those are the lasting lessons that we have from Jesus and His instruction to His apostles on the proclamation of the truth that Christ came to save sinners. And then, verse 14, this odd story, right in the middle of another story, King Herod heard of it. King Herod heard of what? Well, all that we've just been reading. He heard about Jesus. And not just the marvelous ministry of this man, but now the multiplying ministry of this man. I mean, it's an odd insertion here from Mark. But it serves, as I mentioned, as a reminder of what we may be called to sacrifice in our service to Christ. And you know what else it reminds us of? There is no neutrality. None. John the Baptist could have looked for neutrality in the situation. But John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. He came preaching repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Christ. But he didn't just prepare the way, he proclaimed the way of Jesus. The Lamb of God, he said, who takes away the sins of the whole world. He is the Son of God. He proclaimed the way of Jesus. And then he proceeded to get out of the way of Jesus. Having a large following, it was necessary. John the Baptist had become a very popular preacher. So it became necessary for him to bow out of the way. He must increase and I must decrease. All he had to do was remain faithful for that to happen. He remained faithful, was imprisoned, and eventually beheaded. And we see from this example in John the Baptist's life that one of the many ways that we should be proclaiming the gospel is in the public square. That is, where people congregate out there in society and in the sphere of public opinion. John the Baptist wasn't quiet when it came to government officials. He wasn't quiet in the community and in society. He continued to preach the truth and to proclaim God's law and to preach that Jesus came to save sinners. Verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. How did John get to where he is? This is how. (laughs) By telling Herod, you are in sin. He had been saying, that is very regularly, potentially daily. He just kept saying it. He had landed in jail, and he just kept saying, you're in sin. And Herod was a weird dude. He just kept going back and listening. <laughs> it's like his conscience was being bothered a little bit, but he just wouldn't believe. He just wouldn't humble himself. He liked the power that he had in his position, and so he would not submit to Christ. But he kept going back. He didn't like being told to repent, or he would have repented. People in high authority like it even less than common people. No one likes to be told to repent, but especially those in high authority who are in power. Yet God has consistently raised up men who will tell even the powerful government leaders the truth. The Bible's full of examples of this. Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go. Samuel to King Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed Then the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, King Saul, from being king. Or Nathan to David, going to him after his heinous sin. Nathan says to King David, you are the man. Or Elijah to King Ahab, have you murdered and also taken possession? Thus says the Lord. In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours, the prophet says to the king. Or Christ to Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Peter and John to the government officials, religious officials, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Or the Apostle Paul to Felix, speaking of faith in Jesus Christ and righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. Again and again, God has been faithful to raise up men and women who will tell the truth in every aspect of society. Here... It's John the Baptist speaking to Herod. Who is this Herod? He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod that we read about in the Christmas story who ordered the systematic slaughter of all boys in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. So he comes from good stock. 
I'm not being serious, right? The kingdom was divided among these sons of Herod the Great. And so, Herod here in this story acts like a king, but he's not really a king. He's a tetrarch. He's a mid-level managing governor. So, he's already bothered about the power that he thinks he should have that he doesn't have. And that's affecting him. It's affecting his relationships. Now, Herod and John have what appears to be a decent relationship, other than the fact that Herod has imprisoned John for preaching the truth. But Mark tells us here that Herod knows that John is a righteous and holy man. And because of that, he sought to keep him safe. Which is terribly ironic that in the beginning of this passage, the beginning of the story, he's keeping John the Baptist safe, and in the end, he's ordering his head to be chopped off. He's not a very stable man or consistent man. When he heard John the Baptist, he was very perplexed, Mark tells us, and he used to enjoy listening to him. That ought to be a good warning sign to us. If we only enjoy listening to preaching of anyone, but we don't enjoy living in light of the truth of Scripture or proclaiming those truths that we're hearing preached, then we're as good as Herod. Now, Herodias, that's really the person in this story that makes us raise our eyebrows. She and John had a different kind of relationship than Herod and John did. She had a grudge against John the Baptist, and she wanted him put to death. Now, how did Herodias get in this position, and why did she have such a difficult time with John the Baptist? Well, Herodias left her husband, who's Herod Philip, he's called Philip here, He's Herod Antipas. He's the Herod in our story. The Herod that's dealing with John the Baptist is Herod Antipas, right? They're both sons. Herod Philip, Herod Antipas are two of the sons of Herod the Great. Herodias is their niece, okay? So Herodias leaves her husband slash uncle to marry Herod Antipas, who is also her uncle. Now, if you're keeping up, this story includes, but is not limited to, lust, incest, adultery, debauchery, perversion, and we could go on and on. It's wickedness. And here you have John the Baptist standing up in the middle of it, proclaiming repentance from sin and faith in Christ as the only hope. Herod ends up getting outfoxed by his niece, sister-in-law, mistress, wife, and her daughter. I say outfoxed. You may remember Luke 13. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to Jesus, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go tell that fox, Herod, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. So this is after John the Baptist has been killed, further into the life of Jesus, but before his death, Jesus calls him a fox. He's sly, but here he gets outfoxed by Herodias, who takes advantage of an opportune time, or as Mark calls it, a strategic day. Verse 21, a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords, military commanders, leading men of Galilee. And so evil plans and plots will find their opportune time. It was spinning around in the head of Herodias, who was wicked and evil, She was planning and plotting, looking for the time, and she seized the opportunity, and she quickly has woven a web in order to trap Herod in it. Now, why is Herod so prone to jumping into the trap or falling into the web? Because he has allowed his conscience to be hardened with regard to the preaching of the truth of John the Baptist. Time and again, almost daily, going and listening to the truth, but with no real conviction, no healthy fear of God, no healthy fear of sin, no healthy fear of judgment. So much so that Herod is eventually face to face with Jesus before he goes to the cross. 
And he sees nothing, feels nothing, nothing proper anyway. In fact, listen to it recorded in Luke 23. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him. Here's the first place he heard him was way back here. And King Herod heard of it. Verse 14. And all the way, hours before Jesus' death now, Herod has been longing to see Jesus all of this time, supposedly. He was very glad when he saw him. He wanted to see him for a long time. He had been hearing about him, hoping to see some sign performed by him. Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes were standing there accusing Jesus vehemently. And Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, they dressed Jesus in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. If Herod had just repented, remembered the words of John the Baptist, he would have become friends with Jesus that day rather than Pilate. So here we hear emphasized again, there is no neutrality. He wasn't very glad to see Jesus and then condemn him to death. And then verse 30 provides the bookend or the top layer of the sandwich, if you will, to this text. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. It's very difficult for us not to just read from verse 29 to 30 and assume that there's some type of connection. Verse 30 picks up from verse 13. They're coming back from preaching and casting out demons and anointing with oil and healing people. And they come to Jesus and they report all that they've done and what they've been teaching. That's really good advice for us. After we go out, after we spend time out proclaiming the truth, whether it's at work or at school or intentional evangelistic endeavors, it's good to come back and to sit before Christ and to lay it all out again in prayer, asking for Him to continue to work. Good advice for us, good accountability to come before Christ, reporting to Him what we've done. And then Jesus responds, such tender concern from Christ, such compassion shown for His apostles. Jesus said to His apostles, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. And Mark adds an explanation. There were so many people coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat. And here's Jesus, concerned for them. He sent them out to do His bidding. But He's a high priest who can sympathize with us. He Himself experiences hunger and and fatigue, and He expects His people to take advantage of those things. And so He encourages the apostles to come away. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, if you read ahead just for a moment, you're going to see it doesn't, doesn't work out that well. It was well-intentioned, but the people saw them going, and many recognized them, and re- they ran together on foot, all the cities, and they got there ahead of them. So they're on a boat trying to go across to get some rest. People here, that's where they're going. They run, beat them there. They're there. We'll talk about that next week when Jesus feeds 5,000. But back to this text. We have been summoned to serve, and to serve in a kingdom in which there is absolutely no neutrality. We are either active in the advance of Christ's kingdom, or we are a scatterer, which is just the opposite. This is according to Jesus, who, remember, said, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutrality. Herod tried to find neutrality. He's trying to please his wicked wife by throwing John the Baptist in prison. He's trying to please John the Baptist and God by listening to John the Baptist. There's no neutrality. Reality happens. The rubber meets the road. The issue of attempting to find some measure of neutrality is the conscience has to be completely numbed, anesthetized, calloused, That's what happened with Herod here. And we should be very careful that we do not ignore our conscience one moment longer. 
Listen, do not add more judgment to your future by not responding to the free offer of the gospel. The hymn says it so well, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. If you're not in Christ and you have any inclination, any longing that you should move towards him, that you should respond in repentance, that you should trust in him, oh, then you should do so. Don't avoid responding to the Lord working on your conscience, to the truth of his word being pressed home. And if you're in Christ, there's no neutrality. For those who are not in Christ, it's clear there's no neutrality. You're either in Him or you're not. But even when you're in Him, Jesus said, be gathering with Him, be being summoned to Him, be being sent out to serve Him, proclaiming the good news, not sitting back, coasting, waiting but being intentional to walk with Him, to take advantage of these timeless lessons of getting to know Him in His Word and seeking to proclaim Him and salvation that is found in Him to the lost world in which we live. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you again for your word and pray that you would take it and cause the truths of it to sink deep within our being, to affect all of who we are, that we would be completely convinced of the hope that is fully offered to us in the gospel. God, will you cause the lost to run to you? Rescue them and encourage your children, we pray, to rest in you and to keep running hard after you and to proclaim the truths as they are in Jesus in order that your kingdom might advance and expand to the end of the earth. God, we pray that you would cause this to happen for Christ's sake. Amen.